Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. Today's podcast features our regular book club meeting discussion of Recovering Agency, Lifting the Veil of Mormon Mind Control by Luna Corbden. The author joined us for this meeting, and we were absolutely thrilled to have Luna with us. Recovering Agency presents years of research into social psychology and the science of cult dynamics to describe 31 mind control techniques alongside examples of their use in Mormon scripture, lessons, and from the pulpit. This was a phenomenal discussion presented by discussion leader Sean Peterson and originally recorded on Sunday, April 16th, 2023. Welcome, everybody. I'm Rebecca, and this is The Good Book Club. This is our April meeting. It's the 16th. It's Sunday morning at 11 a.m., and we are absolutely thrilled to have everybody here. We are going to start out, as we always do, by reading our mission statement, and we've asked our book club member, Nelson, if he would read that for us. Okay, The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences related relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. Oh, thank you so much, Nelson. We read that at the beginning of each of our programs, just to make sure that we, number one, we remember uh, what we're all about, and also for people that are new to kind of give them a sense of of what our perspectives and our mission statement is all about. So um, we also talk about fun things we did in the past. Uh, a lot of good book club members went to Wise Guys Comedy Club, and we saw Fresh King Benjamin, who is a former polygamist comedian, uh, which is funny in itself. So that was really fun. So we appreciate all of you that came out with us to that because that was a really awesome evening. We love to meet our, we call it book club members in the wild, those that are in Utah and like to join us for things. So that was really fun. So thanks everybody for that. And we have something really exciting coming up that we are going to let Landon, who is kind of spearheading this, talk about. Yeah, so uh, anyone who missed Tuesday, we had a, uh, a, a lazy learner discussion of the cultural astronomy of the ancient Fremont with uh, Dr. John Lundwall, who's one of our members. And uh, those that made it, it was such a great talk. Everyone got all excited about wanting to see uh, some of this Indian rock art. So we went ahead and we scheduled a field trip. Uh, so we're going to go to Fremont Indian State Park. Uh, it's down there off I-70. It's about two hours, uh, a little bit, two hours, two hours, 30 minutes to, to the site. So what we're going to do, we'll meet in Orem, uh, and then we can drive down together, carpool if people want to carpool. Uh, and uh, we're going to do that on May 6th and 7th. Uh, we'll go down, we'll spend the day, and, and Dr. Uh, Lundwall will show us some of the rock art. It's really interesting, the stuff he has. And then we'll uh, go over and stay the night in uh, Richfield, uh, or you can come back. It's up to you. 
Uh, we're going to stay the night in Richfield and then head up into Emory County and see a couple other panels that he had shown us that were really interesting and then drive back Sunday uh, night and we can pick back up the cars if you want to leave it at the Orm uh, track station. So we'll put more information out. If you're interested, please let us know and we'll start a chat and we'll put out all the information for what for the information that you need uh, to do that. So uh, everyone's welcome and hope you can make it. Yeah, this is going to be really exciting, really wonderful. I hope you guys can participate if you're around. So, all right, very quickly, our upcoming events that we have. Um, I also helped John DeLynn run his Mormon Stories Book Club, and we are reading Conspiracy by Michael Shermer. So this is extra bonus reading for us in the Good Book Club. Um, we are going to be having a live stream with Michael on, and I need to update that date. I'm sorry, Melissa, I didn't let you know. We had to change it, some conflict with John. It's actually going to be May 19th. So you have a long time to read the book and we're going to be able to talk and ask questions to Michael Shermer. So this is going to be really exciting. So we'll get those dates updated online for you, but it is not until May. And another bonus event, bonus reading, <laughs> the amazing Lorelai Kay uh, <laughs> from Mormon to Mermaid, One Woman's Joy from Voyage from Oppression to Freedom. She is just a fabulous person. We just interviewed her over on Mormonish and she's going to come and talk to us on a bonus event on Tuesday evening, May 2nd at 7 p.m. And she'll be reading some of her work and we can talk to her. And it's such a quick read. It's just such a really interesting, fun book. Um, I would highly recommend everybody grab this and we'll talk to Lorelai uh, beginning of May. So... And then next on the radar for book club, I am very excited about this one. We're just briefly going to mention it here. Genghis Khan and the making of the modern world. And Bruce is our discussion leader for this. This is going to be May 21st, same time, 11 a.m. And Bruce is going to give us more details at the end of book club today about Genghis Khan. But put that uh, in your Amazon cart. And of course, date change. Typically, our meetings are the second Sunday of the month, but of course, Mother's Day. <laughs> we can't have a lot of uh, kids and dads and moms mad at us because we're taking time away for book club. So we have moved that to May 21st. So you have some time to read Genghis Khan. So be aware of that date change. Whew, I think we made it through all the announcements. And now onto the main event, what everybody is here for, this incredible, pivotal, foundational book in the post-Mormon world, we are going to be discussing recovering agency by Luna Corbin today. And the author, Luna, is here with us. We could not be more thrilled. We're actually pinching ourselves that Luna is here. So from this point, uh, we are going to let our discussion leader, Sean, kind of take it from here. He is going to introduce Luna, read Luna's bio, and then kind of take the discussion from there. So thank you, everybody. And take it away, Sean. Good morning, everybody. Uh, and welcome, Luna. Uh, we haven't actually met yet, but it's, it's wonderful to have you join us. We're so excited. And uh, I am definitely not the most interested. Oh, hi. There you are. Okay, I see you now. <laughs> so um, I am definitely not the most interesting person in this room, uh, as you will uh, find out here quickly. This is a, just a quick bio. Luna Corbden was born into the LDS church and left the faith in 2001 at age 26. They are autistic and gender fluid, live in Washington state and write about topics of interest, including psychology, mind control, culture, and autism. Their book, Recovering Agency, Lifting the Veil of Mormon Mind Control, 
helps religious trauma survivors unpack their conditioning by deconstructing the manipulation techniques used by the LDS Church. They are an advocate for marginalized people who exist within or at the fringes of uh, authoritarian uh, religions, particularly Mormonism, and Corbin also writes science fiction and fantasy. Uh, when they're not busy traveling to improbable worlds or thinking hard about this in, this improbable world, they're probably snuggled with their cat and an iPad. Uh, more about Corbin's work can be found at uh, www.recoveringagency.com, and they can be reached on uh, Mastodon uh, at Corbin at defcon.social. So, Luna, now that we've got you here, uh, we thought maybe we could give you just a couple minutes to say anything you want uh, the, before the presentation or introduce yourself or say anything you want uh, about the book before we get into uh, the discussion. Great. Um, I don't really have a whole lot to say. Um, I'm, I'm here to answer questions. And um, once you get me started on a topic, I can usually uh, go, but I'm a little bit prompt dependent, which is an autism thing. Um, if there's not something reminding me of a thing, then then I don't always have much to say. So thank you very much and for that intro. Fantastic. Well, we're, we're excited to have you here for some Q&A. And uh, I'm going to share my screen. Um, there we go. So um, So I'll try and explain how this is going to work uh, for the Q&A portion and uh, discussion portion. There is so much to this book. It is so meaty that we could literally take hours and hours and hours uh, discussing all the particulars of the book. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to be a little bit fast in my presentation to save a little bit of time for, for some discussion. But uh, I've titled this presentation... Of course, we have the title of the book, Recovering Agency, Lifting the Veil of Mormon Mind Control. But uh, I've also given this a personal title, uh, plus one active member's personal journey. Uh, because reading this book, and I agreed to read this book and, and take this on many, many months ago before I had any idea what it was going to do to me. <laughs> but, uh, but I did interject, and you'll see in the presentation uh, highlighted in in blue some of my thoughts and my experience um, as we go along and the impact that the book had on me. So we'll start with a quick bio. And like I said, I am not the most in interesting person in this room, but I thought it might be good for you to uh, kind of know where I'm coming from. Uh, I was very TBM my whole life, fourth generation uh, member. Uh, I'm the youngest of eight, come from a very dysfunctional family. And the church was a huge, huge anchor in my life as a youth uh, growing up, um, which I'm very, very grateful for in many ways. Uh, in 1988, I was among the first two elders to open Poland up to missionary work. Uh, my mission journal uh, is, has also been copied into the church archives. Um, I was recently serving as bishop here in southern Michigan. Um, released about four years ago, and I'm currently serving on the High Council. Uh, the November 2015 a policy of exclusion uh, basically drove my, my faith crisis, uh, and my shelf broke in 2020 while serving on the High Council. Uh, the only people who are really aware of this right now are my bishop, uh, outside of my family, are my bishop and my stake president, who has, for some reason, 
decided that it's still a good thing for me to serve on the High Council. Um, after this uh, experience on the Good Book Club in this presentation, that may change. We'll see. <laughs> this is probably the bravest thing I've ever done in the world of uh, post-Mormonism. Uh, I have a very, very happy marriage, six children. Uh, my oldest is non-binary. I have, and I also have three boys and two girls. Uh, my wife and three of my boys are still very much in the church. And right now I'm just spending my time uh, throughout my deconstruction process, looking for ways that I can bridge gaps between TBMs, PMOs, and XMOs. And I would classify myself as very, very, very nuanced. Uh, member, uh, maybe drifting towards the, the PMO category. As you can see, I really like colors, and this is going to be the outline of our, of our uh, presentation and discussion. Uh, we'll have three segments. Uh, we'll start with segment one, where we will uh, basically cover all of part one and part two of the book, and then we will get into a little bit of part three uh, thought reform methods. Um, after spending about 20 minutes or so in that, we'll have some discussion and some Q&A. Uh, you're all free to say what you want to say or ask me or ask especially Luna any questions that you might have uh, on the content. And I will put up a summary of the uh, topics that are covered in that section. Segment two will cover the bulk of uh, part three, the thought reform methods. And then the segment three uh, will finish off part three, and then uh, have the conclusion with some uh, final discussion time and final Q&A. So with that, part one, forward. I, I put in a few quote, quotes from Luna that I absolutely loved, and this is one that I felt uh, had a, uh, a very good way to set the tone for the entire book. Uh, the degree to which controlling tactics are used is what separates the the freest groups from the most coercive. The LDS church falls someplace on the unethical end of the spectrum, but it doesn't have to. Mormonism can still retain its unique identity as a religion without using coercive persuasion methods. I love that quote because uh, it, uh, it does, does give some hope, uh, hope for improvement for, for the church, which I would love to see. So in the, in the first section, part one, in the beginning, it started in a garden. Um, Luna does a wonderful job, and, and the book covers uh, the, the subject of Adam and Eve as heroes, which is a unique teaching in the church. Uh, many Christian churches, churches teach just the opposite. Uh, but I give credit to the founders of the church for this particular uh, theology. Uh, free will versus determinism, an unanswerable, unanswerable question. And uh, basically, the, the book helps to kind of explore the gray areas uh, between, you know, what does is, what is free agency look like and what does determin determinism look like and how might a church take advantage uh, and, and over, overuse uh, controlling techniques. Here's this... this section that I had the most difficult time with was the C word. And I went into this book thinking, uh, is it a church or is it a cult? And then I started wondering, is there really a difference? Um, I, I suppose it could be argued that, that every religion that exists in the world started out in some way as a cult. Uh, there may be 
characteristics of every religion that has some culty characteristics to it. But my personal struggle was, would I ever call the LDS church a cult? After reading the book, I had to concede that the, the church is very, very much culty. <laughs> it is very definitely culty in its nature, and it doesn't have to be. Um, but that, uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't disagree with, uh, with so much of what was presented in the book. Uh, Luna then presents her exit their exit story, um, which I felt was a, a really a wonderful, scientific, honest, self-reflective looking at the evidence. And I think that's something that I could definitely relate to, um, being a kind of scientific in, in, in my own mind as well. And then, and then the illusion of choice. This is the part that really got to me. Uh, you have a choice. You can pick one. You can pick the church or you can pick death. There's your choice. <laughs> Not much of a choice. Um, so that was, that was very eye-opening for me. What is mind control? Uh, if you were brainwashed, would you know it? Do Mormons recognize other cults? Uh, I think that they do. Uh, here's a quote from Margaret Singer from Cults in Our Mist. Thought reform is a concerted effort to change a person's way of looking at the world, which will change his or her behavior. Uh, and, then, and then this point I thought was very important. Informed consent or lack thereof is a, a major factor in determining, you know, how, how much mind control is, is going on uh, within an organization. Then the question is, what is, what is a cult? A cult could be defined as excessive devotion, uses thought reform, induces psychological dependency, exploits members, and causes psychological harm. And after looking at all that, I thought, yeah, my personal confession again, that uh, the, the church is definitely very, very, very culty in its nature. Here's some myths of cults and mind control that, uh, that were covered in Luna's book. Cults, myths, well, there's several. Cults are weird or obvious. Um, not, not so. Brainwashing involves physical restraint, hypnotic wheels, flashing images. Brainwashing requires hypnosis. Only stupid, needy, mentally ill, uneducated, or spiritually weak people join cults. All cults are religious in nature. A cult is any pseudo-Christian or non-Christian faith. Cult means the same thing as occult, which is definitely not true. Uh, people can easily leave a cult whenever they want. No one is forcing them to be there. Um, people who have left cults should get over it. <laughs> brainwashing is total. Leaving or dis disagreeing is proof that they were not brainwashed. So those are all, I thought, really eye-opening myths. And I've had these myths myself. Uh, uh, when I thought of cults in the past, but uh, the more I've learned about cults, and I've studied a lot of books lately, uh, and, and certainly this one helps to shed light on the fact that it's not so simple, that uh, uh, there's a lot more to being involved that uh, makes it difficult to, uh, to even recognize that you're in a cult. Uh, all is not well in Zion. Happiness and Plato's allegory of the cave was presented. Uh, then the question, is Mormonism a danger to society? Um, you know, it's this nice little religion, and people are really kind and trying to do their best. How much of a danger is it? Um, but I think that there are some really good points made in the book that uh, 
they're actually, yeah, you can, you can drift too far. You can go too far and there are um, organizations who have done so, which we certainly wouldn't want to see the LDS church drift into a, an area where they're actually causing harm. And, and in many ways they are causing harm. I think we all know that all of us who are on this, uh, on this uh, meeting know that, uh, that there's some real harm that's taking place. Um, it affects, it impacts the, you know, the church impacts the way we look at life. It does cause damage and it, it changes how we make, make decisions uh, throughout our lives. It affects our self-esteem. Uh, sometimes we can feel like a square peg in a round hole and just not fitting in. Um, the, the guilt and shame, depression, eating disorders, and suicide. I think we see that rampant, uh, among members of the church, uh, codependency, passive aggressive uh, culture, uh, which is something that I'm trying to unprogram myself from, and I've spent several years of therapy <laughs> to to work on just that. Uh, and then material loss, tithing, uh, focusing so much on the next life that you basically sacrifice this life, and so forth. So yeah, these are all good reasons to be aware of why there's problems in Zion. Um, don't just get over it, recover. Uh, though hard to you, this journey may appear, it covers, you know, there's, there's real challenges leaving. Uh, we have to reprogram ourselves. We have to uh, learn how to live in society again and, and how to do things that maybe we were trained poorly how to handle in our uh, in our time in the church. Uh, those who are born in the covenant experience unique challenges uh, compared to those who were um, converts to the church. And then, uh, but the point here in this section was that thriving is possible. And we'll talk about that at the end of the, of the presentation as well. Uh, Luna discusses slippery sources. Uh, and, uh, and we have to be mindful of the sources that we're, that we're told to stick to. And also there are sources out there that are very educational and can help really shed light. Uh, truth is eternal and verifiable. Truth is eternal. It depends on who you ask. Even within the church, um, you can uh, get different answers from different people. And it's very, very slippery. Um, there is good. By their fruits, you know, there is good that does exist. And I think, I think Luna does a good job of uh, pointing that out, obviously, that uh, it's not all bad. <laughs> there, there is some good. And, and I think, I think uh, it's, it's good to acknowledge that. Um, so those were the main sections of part one. And then in part two, we get into the uh, science of believing. Uh, in the science of believing, we cover a theory of cognitive dissonance uh, by Leon Festinger, and he states three strategies for reducing dissonance. Uh, one is altering cognitions, like existing cognitions, you might change your belief. Uh, adding new cognitions or rejecting the new information is one way to reduce dissonance. Um, and that might include new cognitions, uh, mental or it might be behavioral, you might behave differently, or social. Um, 
alter importance of cognitions and prioritize what is essential. So something may, uh, you may bring a concern to a leader of the church, say, hey, this, this new information is really, really bothering me. And then the, the uh, altering the importance might sound something like, well, that's not really critical to your salvation. You know, in other words, don't worry about it. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of that going on right now. Uh, and a lot of things that uh, we're just not supposed to worry about. Uh, that it, it's, it's, they're all stacking up on a shelf. Uh, Luna discusses five fictional case studies. Uh, one was Sister Brooks, who had no support for, um, offered no support for a sister who was being abused. Brother Pell, trying to reconcile evolution with creation. Sister Warren rejecting unpleasant facts of Joseph Smith, Elder Roberts, a missionary, dealing with contradictions of the Bible and the Book of Mormon, uh, and then Brother Porter resigning from the church due to deceptions. Uh, these obviously were fictional case studies, but I think, I think all of us could probably relate to these case studies, that these things are happening, these, these um uh, situations and circumstances happen all the time, and we could probably add quite a few more to that list. Uh, just one from our general conference uh, last week, which uh, which was very, or two weeks ago, which was very eye-opening, comes from uh, Elder Haney. And here's his quote. Unlike vintage comic books and classic cars, prophetic teachings do not become more valuable with age. That is why we should not seek to use the words of past prophets to dismiss the teachings of living prophets. So I think that was a perfect example of uh, readjusting uh, priorities in our minds to deal with the, the dissonance that, uh, that happens when we discover new information. What is the antidote? Uh, cognitive awareness. Uh, and and this was, I think, the the tipping point for me in my journey is when I finally started asking myself the question, what if I'm wrong? What else did they get wrong? As soon as I allowed myself to even entertain that question, then the floodgates started opening. And I think that was really, really key and really, really insightful. Uh, Luna addresses prophecy failures and the mental gymnastics that everyone jumps through to try and make the prophetic thing valid again. Um, there's a couple of quotes that they make in the book regarding biases and um, confirmation bias. So the, the bias blind spot is the king of all biases. Other people are suckers, but not you. And that is an illusion. You're a sucker too. We all are. How true is that? And then another quote, you pray for sun and nine times it's rainy, but the 10th time the sun came out and you thank God. Brilliant. Uh, also under the science of believing, uh, there's influence. Uh, let's see, Robert, I think it's, Caldini or Cialdini, uh, with the influence, science, and practice. He talks about six compliance practices. 
which are reciprocation or obligation to give back, feeling obligated. Uh, second one was commitment and consistency. And I kind of call it in for a penny, in for a pound mentality that, that we all want to be, we don't want to look bad. So if we're going to dedicate so much of our lives towards some belief system, uh, for goodness sakes, it can't be false. Then there's social proof. Uh, you do as, as you see, monkey see, monkey do. Uh, liking, which is the halo effect. Uh, that person's just so amazing. So they, they can't be wrong. wrong. Uh, obedience to authority, which is very prevalent everywhere, and then scarcity, um, the motivating threat behind loss. Uh, and I think we see evidence of all of this. Uh, Luna talks about mirror neurons and the twist or the twisting. Uh, you know, we're all we're all programmed to have empathy, and uh, and sometimes that empathy can be um, can be twisted in a way that, uh, that can affect the way that we think. And then uh, they talked about the Milgram experiment uh, of those who are just following orders when they were electrocuting people uh, in the other room um, because uh, they were told to do that. Uh, a lot of great stuff in this book. And I wish we could spend a lot more time diving into all of these, but I'm, I'm going to go through quickly the first four of the uh, thought reform methods, and then we're going to open it up for some discussion because we covered a lot already, and I want to give everyone a chance to kind of uh, weigh in on any of your thoughts that you have. So, so in part three, we, uh, Luna talks about the whole armor of God, that it is a perpetual motion machine, and the machine is you. <laughs> you are the machine. Uh, that uh, we're the ones who are in perpetual motion. We're the ones who are um, hustling or worthiness and, uh, and acceptance. And we're all paying the price for the good. We talked about how much good there is, right? But unfortunately, we don't always count the cost of the bad that comes along with it. Uh, characteristics of thought reform include controlling time, powerlessness under authority, closed system of logic, uh, subtle and unsophistication. Um, and, you know, I look at it as... Some people just have a very simple, a very simple faith. I don't know that this is necessarily shallow-minded. I put that in there as a question, but I think some some people do have a very simple faith, and they don't want to be bothered by all the complex stuff. And and maybe it works for them if they don't have to, you know, kind of come out of their uh, their shell. But uh, but uh, those who are maybe more thoughtful and think a lot more deeply, it might be more of a struggle for them who try and, uh, and make connections and make sense of, of everything. Uh, eroding perceptions, man manipulating experiences uh, with rewards and punishments, et cetera. And then of course the bite model. Brad Morin, an ex-Mormon says uh, a quote here, it is not ignorance which damns us, rather it is the love of ignorance, the devotion of ignorance, the passionate embrace of ignorance by labeling other views as evil they relents, relentlessly insist, uh, see, see no evil, hear no evil. And each method that we're going to go over uh, performs several of the following functions. It, it gives provides rewards, uh, suppression, influence, trust, reinforcement, punishment, silencing doubts, group identification, isolation, and perpetuation. 
So here's the first two, love bombing. Of course, love bombing, we're all familiar with that. Friendliness, flattery, praise, affection freely used. Uh, often targeting visitors, less actives, or those who are struggling. Um, and, you know, part of me thinks, is this genuine, natural? I think it is. I think people are general, genuinely nice. But I think that maybe the way that we target certain people may be a little bit fabricated. Uh, and there's not the same intensity given to regular members, you know, regular in quotes, as might be given to those who are in these special circumstances. So does that mean it's maybe not so genuine? I think that's a good question. Destabilization. We're supposed to put ourselves on the shelf. Uh, we're uh, targeting unstable individuals, uh, born in the covenant, um, and then regaining the self, following our own true north. Um, are all aspects of overcoming destabilization. Deception is the third one. Uh, and I think this is the one that really bothered me the most as I got looking into all of the uh, specific examples. There's omissions, obfuscations, front activities, and lies. We've all heard the term lying for the Lord. Uh, covering up inconsistencies, flaws, unusual aspects of practices, doctrine, leadership, history. Um, I've heard it described perfectly here. Lawyers, it's like a lawyer refusing to release evidence um, that, uh, that would basically shed light on all of the truth. But the lawyer has an agenda. The lawyer is trying to win that side of the argument and therefore snuff out any uh, dissenting opinions or thoughts. Uh, we've heard of milk before meat. Some teachings are revealed only when the member is quote unquote ready. Um, latest teaching, this wasn't in the book, but latest teachings that I'm aware of that I've come across along these lines. Now an eight-year-old baptism removes agency and it has serious obligation of that individual, especially if it's a male, to serve a mission. Basically, we're being told now by leaders of the church that, well, you were baptized, so what if you were eight? But that covenant you made at the age of eight, uh, you promised that you would do everything. And uh, that includes serving a mission, that includes going through the temple and all the promises that you make there and basically dedicating your entire life. Um, that's what we're being told now. Um, I think that the church has made some baby steps in the endowment and gospel topics essays to, to be a little bit more forthcoming on um, what people are getting into. Uh, so I, I, I give them credit for that, but they're very, very much baby steps. This was my favorite quote of the whole book. Under sacred science, a closed system of logic. <clears throat> Our post-enlightenment culture requires a pretense, a reason, for all ideas. The modern mind, even the modern religious mind, demands an explanation. Yet on an intuitive level, we still crave the unexplainable. If a cult leader can successfully wrap the two together in a way that continues to make sense, the opposing concepts can amplify in a feedback loop of euphoric consonants. A spiritual experience for the present day. 
Such teachings will satiate a craving for answers and seem superior to any other school of thought. I love this because I am, uh, I have that scientific mind. I need to think along the lines of logic. And when you combine the logic with the miracle, then you have a perfect system uh, for people like me uh, to kind of fall right into. And the closed system of logic has three key goals. Number one, the church is universally true and logical. And answers only can be found in the group teachings. Number two, the, the prophet speaks for God. And number three, suppression of dissent. Uh, critics and questioners are immoral. Uh, and there you have your mind trap. You achieve those three then you're trapped and you're stuck in this uh, closed system of logic. So that's the first segment. And we're going to open it up for some questions or comments, if anybody has any. Yeah, raise your hand on, on the... Uh... Oh, yeah, raise your hand on the Zoom. That way we can call on you. Landon. Yeah, I wanted to say first off, with Luna being on here, uh, just what a what a great book this was. I'm, I mean, I don't think you missed anything. <laughs> I was going through there, going, "Wow, she's really hit everything," and it was just so uh, eye opening to me. You know, I I already I already knew, and we we went to Thrive and got to listen to uh, Dr. Hassan, uh, who I know you you used in a lot of your book. Um, you referenced his his work. And so I really got a, a, a whole month full of this uh, mind control. And, and then to be able to see conference as part of that as well. Uh, in fact, uh, Rebecca created a, a, a little bingo game that was the bite model bingo, where you could look for these different cult tactics in each of the talks that were, that were given at conference time. So uh, it was really interesting to see the tactics. And, and I think you just hit everything. I, I was just blown away as I read it, how accurate uh, these things were and how much it, it uh, played into my life. And, you know, one of the things is I think we all felt, uh, you know, how was I so dumb that I, that I fell for this so long? Uh, but one of the points that you made was that it's really, uh, a lot of times it's, it's actually high intelligent people who, who end up in these cults. And many of us were born into it and, and never knew anything other than that. But it was interesting to see that uh, a lot of the other cults outside of Mormonism uh, that we see also have very highly intelligent people who are, who are uh, buying into these tactics. So the tactics work and you look, they don't just work on a, on a religious level, but uh, you kept mentioning China and how China would use these. And I've seen that like North Korea and other places where they use these tactics and how, you know, really about half the world is probably under mind control of some sort from a government or, or religion. And so when you, it was so important to see these different aspects and be able to, to look at them rationally to see, not only am I being necessarily influenced by the church, but I could be influenced by my government as well. Am I looking at that? Am I looking at other institutions in my life to see if they're using these same tactics? So that we can kind of look and step back and say, I've got to maybe remove myself from this uh, cognitive dissonance and step back and see where is the truth really at. And that was where, for me, this book was really 
uh, so useful. Uh, and, and so I really appreciate it, Lou, and it was, it was really well written. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate that. And um, speaking of feeling dumb, um, and this is why none of none of us are, are, are dumb for getting wrapped up in this. While I was writing this book, I was about five, six years into a relationship with an abuser. Um, and, you know, it's that that subconscious niggling, what I'm researching here kind of feels familiar kind of a thing. Um, so it even even aware of all of these strategies, you can still get caught up in something and, and it isn't just governments and it isn't just um, religions and other and, and business groups and things like that. It's also our personal relationships that we need to be really careful of and make sure that we we have agency and that our partners have agency and that that's that those needs are balanced between people. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Lynette. Hello. First of all, I just want to thank Luna. This book has been very helpful for us. I know when I first read it, probably five years ago or something, there was so much in it. I just was, I couldn't take it all in. But since then, I've been able to look at pieces of it and understand more about it. Luna, I just want to ask you, how did you come to write this book? And how did you come to leave the church? And you were so young. Here I am. I'm in my 60s now. So I was in my late 50s when things started to click, but you were, what, 20 or something? How did you figure it out so young? Yeah, I was 26. Um, and uh, I kind of circumvented it. So I didn't go the direct route where I was wading through all of this cognitive dissonance and using all the strategies that the church taught me. Um, I, I, like I said, I'm a science fiction writer sometimes. Um, and um, I was in a chat group uh, that was talking about this concept of the technological singularity. Um, you can go read about it. There's a lot of, in, we see it in science fiction, um, the Terminator, the Matrix, um, this idea that someday something will invent something that's more intelligent than us. And um, I was sort of grappling with, with the ideas of what that really means and thinking about what intelligence is and what a superior intelligence is and what it's like for us to be superior intelligences to animals and then what that would be like if we were the ant or the animal um, trying to understand something more intelligent than us. And it just clicked all of a sudden that this being that I was describing, it was identical to God and that the, the difficulty I was having in comprehending um, such a, a, an artificial intelligence type being would be the exact same difficulty we would have in comprehending God. And I just kind of put two and two together and went, but the church says we should know all these things about God. I mean, they say God is incomprehensible, but then they turn around and be like, well, here's all the ways that God is comprehensible. Um, he's a father. He loves us. He um, punishes us. He wants justice. These are all very human concepts. And I could no longer believe in that human of a God, um, which kind of left me not believing in any revealed God, any, any God that any human beings um, have interpreted, except for those that are vague and um, very um, ephemeral. Um, so that's, that's how I left. And then um, uh, a couple years after I left, uh, a, a friend of mine, a friend of a friend kind of was running a little bit of a cult of her own, but I didn't really know anything about cults yet to recognize that. And she, she recommended, she's like, have you been deprogrammed? Um, and I'm like, no, I'm fine. Thanks. Um, but then uh, that really started bugging me. I started thinking about that. And um, uh, so I, I picked up a couple books on cults 
and mind control. Then I picked up some more books and I just started devouring them and writing footnotes. And um, I, I wanted to, I knew I wanted to write a book someday about it, but just, you know, I was working in IT, high paced tech career, and never got around to it. And then when I got with aforementioned abuser, um, uh, he uh, got, I was financially dependent on him after a while, um, which was the downside of that. The upside of that was that I did have time to write this book. And um, so that that's one of those things we all take from our experiences, the good and the bad. And that was the good thing that I got out of that um, relationship was the ability to write this book. So uh, that's how it came about. Thank you. Thanks, Lynette. Uh, Bruce. Uh, yeah, I just have, you know, kind of my general thoughts on why I'm part of the book club and like it so much is because since I left, you know, I'm trying to figure out how the world works, what my place is. And with the book club, we've read Sapiens, Free Will, The Body Keeps a Score, How to Be Perfect. And this book really helped me understand much of my life and and how to analyze it and stuff so again the book club and my reading helps me answer okay how does the world work how do i how do i fit in how do i'm i'm 66 i've got maybe a quarter of my life left um i'm gay i didn't come out until uh i retired and this book really described i'm i'm just going like every time you know, every chapter I'm going like, oh yeah, that, that was part of my life. So I want to thank you. This is, this is part of me being able to understand how my life has played out and also helping me to go forward on what my choices are going to be and how I interact with people, my, my TBM family. I live in California, so the church isn't a big factor here. It never was with my work, but my family is still at least 75% in the church. So this is really good. Great. Thank you. Thanks for that. Thanks, Bruce. Celia. Oh, hi. I'm Celia. Um, so I wanted to delve a little bit more into the whole idea of by their fruits, you shall know them. Luna, you touched on that a little bit in the book. And you talked about, you know, some of the goodness from the people that, you know, they believe in family and hard work. And as long as you fit in their little specific, you know, peg, then they're comfortable. Um, and there is a lot of good. And that's important to recognize. I think they're mostly sincere, you know, LDS. Um, however, I don't, I've never heard it talked about when, when you mention uh, from anybody by their fruit, she shall know them. I always think about all the offshoots that came from the original doctrines of the church, the blood atonement, the polygamy, and a lot of really dark things that the LDS church now just wants to put, you know, hide away and sweep under the rug. And unfortunately, it is a part of their history that is, you can't deny it. Um, I come from one of the offshoots. My father, you mentioned him in the book. My father was Ervil LeBaron. And he not only taught all his children blood atonement, but he sent his children out to blood atonement. And so to me, that is one of the fruits of this whole organization, unfortunately. 
And there are so many of them that are extremely abusive. And, and, and anyway, what do you think about including that in the fruits of this whole organization? Um, I agree with that. And I think um, that even uh, definitely the offshoots, the more extreme offshoots that we see today um, are, are fruits of Joseph Smith's original work. Um, and honestly, going back all of Christianity's original work, um, the forced conversions and colonizations and all of that. Um, and even even the LDS church has so much blood on its hands. Um, I don't remember if I had drawn this conclusion um, by the time I wrote my book, um, but but oftentimes people bring up, well, what about Jonestown? What about the suicide cults and all the suicides? Well, if you compare um, all of the suicides that happen in the Mormon church for people who don't feel like they fit in, um, LGBT people are, are definitely um, at the forefront of that, but pretty much anybody who for whatever reason doesn't feel like they can conform um, to the gender roles or the strict any of the strictness of it and doesn't feel accepted uh, by their family and by their by their community um, suicide rates go up and just because it doesn't happen all in one day doesn't negate the thousands and thousands and thousands of bodies so um, yes by their fruits both lds and flds and all the offshoots the little ones the big ones all of them um, we, we have to look at both, um, you know, the good things that they do um, and the bad things we do. And I try to encourage more of the good things. And, um, you know, we hope that that awareness maybe or um, the activism efforts that so many um, progressive nuanced Mormons and post-Mormons are, are, are doing will maybe make some change. We're starting to see some little bit of change. You know, people, people and organizations change only as much um, as they feel that they need to, to get what they want. Um, it's just a human tendency that we all have. And so the church is making these little tiny sort of surface level changes, um, you know, and, and hopefully that we can keep the pressure on them and they can start maybe making some more um, effectual changes. Thank you. Thank you, Celia. You're welcome. I think, uh, I thought I saw one more hand, but I, oh, Landon. We can't hear you. Yeah, I thought Debbie's hand was up, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead. Uh, this uh, deception that at part three, the the idea of the deception, to to me that that's just been the killer. When I when I was studying, when I was trying to determine, you know, is this true or not, it. It wasn't so much the facts that I was finding, although those were were very damning. I think I still would have left, but it was the deception. And when I found out, they knew all of this. They knew this, and they were keeping it from me. And I see that I see that being repeated over and over again from people. It, it was it's the hiding and the lying that is hurting people more than anything. These are the men we trusted for our entire life. We looked to these men to be. Yet, you know, they were the men next to God. They were walking and talking with God. And now we're finding out that they know this information and they're keeping it from us. And even now, when the, when the essays have come out and so many people are leaving, they continue to do it. It's almost as if, and, and maybe it's because it is not true that they have to do that to keep members in, but it's just so frustrating as I look at the the things they're putting out now, we're, we're doing uh, 
uh, with Backyard Professor tonight, we're looking at the 13 uh, uh, top, uh, gospel topic essays. And one of the things we looked at as they were rolling those out is that the first two essays had nothing to do with any of the problems that people had with the church, but they were rolling them out because they were criticisms of the church that that uh, were from the outside that people inside wouldn't really be concerned about to kind of throw you off of, okay, here comes some other stuff coming. And everything I see they're doing that in, I, they, they use these weasel words, they use, you know, the tithing, we, we didn't use tithing funds to build the City Creek Center. And now we find out, you know, it was the interest from the tithing funds, like you could separate. There's always this deception that's just like they can't just tell the truth. And to me, that was the most harmful part uh, of everything was the deception. I think it continues to be as people see this, that that's going to be the part that just really kills them, even even worse than the historical uh, problems with the church. Yeah, and deception, honestly, is what makes it unhealthy. It's what makes it unethical. You know, if they told you everything up front um, in, you know, whether in the fine print or in the bold print or whatever, and, and you knew and you still signed up for that, um, then, you know, you might be harming other people. But as far as the individual is concerned who agrees to that, um, what what harm is there? What I mean, you're agreeing to it, right? So um, really, that that is the biggest line drawn between, you know, I mean, you look at the U.S. military and it uses a lot of, I, I disagree um, with a lot of the military actions that we do and with how much money we're spending on the military, but um, at least they are mostly um, honest uh, and upfront about what they're up to. I mean, we're up to going and, and fighting thing, people and breaking things. And so um, because of that, I think um, it is more acceptable to society and a little bit more ethical than say, if, if all of that was covert and, and hidden and nobody involved knew what was going on. Thank you, Landon. We have time for one more and then we're gonna have to move along. Uh, Luann. Okay, my question is just how. You know, we're discussing what, but how? It's like there's a blueprint and they build it. Joseph Smith, I mean, it's taken maybe thousands of people's contributions to make this organism of control. Um, I don't believe in a devil anymore, but it sure would be convenient to think it was a devil and it was a master plan that he'd set up. What is your, what are your thoughts, Luna, about how cults are born and how they live, survive, how they grow? Yeah, it's um, institutionalized narcissism. And I mean that in the um, more clinical definition of that, not the um, someone who looks at themselves in the mirror um, too much. I'm talking about like someone who, um, has a very fragile and super inflated ego who um, we all have fragile and super inflated egos, but someone who externalizes that ego and needs everyone around them to reinforce who they are and what they need. It's all about um, them and they'll manipulate and do whatever. And I, I think that Joseph Smith was probably, um, it's difficult to armchair diagnose um, through the centuries, um, but uh, he, he definitely shows all the patterns of a typical malignant narcissist who um, he just needed everyone around him to reinforce who he was and would stop at nothing. He had the charm. Um, most, a lot of narcissists are very charming um, and people tend to like them. There's that likability. Um, we tend to trust people that we like. Um, and I think uh, that pretty much 
every everything that I would call a cult um, besides maybe Scientology was sort of arrived naturally. So Joseph Smith was born, um, his, his father doesn't seem like a good guy either. So in the trauma of his family situation, um, he would have uh, reacted to protect himself. Um, some people react in that way by becoming more submissive or trying to appease people or all these different strategies. But narcissists tend to take the strategy of just trying to control everything. Um, and so as a child, he would have begun to experiment with, um, you know, if I do or say this, it um, people do what I want. If I do or say that, people don't like me or, or reject what I want. And so just over time, he began to build up um, these methods on his own through trial and error. Um, so it's only really been um, since the 1950s, since Robert J. Lifton and, and his crew, that we started to see these um, concepts codified, that we started to see the manipulation methods sort of figured out and reverse engineered, if you will. Uh, so I think I think it just sort of grew from Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, then was sort of the strongest narcissist that followed him and therefore took over the Brighamite arm of the church. Um, and then from there, the organization just kind of became like its own thing. Um, if, if you ever want to study memetics, um, memes aren't just um, internet pictures that people spread around. They sort of, um, the theory is, is that memes are their own life form that then takes on a life of its own and, and struggles for survival. And so the Mormon church kind of, in my opinion, now is um, this sort of living being that is struggling to survive just like Joseph Smith was. And um, it's trying all these different strategies. It's using the, the old strategies, but some of those aren't working. So it's now it's trying new strategies. Um, and I, I think that in some ways it's maybe beyond the control of the leaders of the church at this point. I don't think there's any one person in the church that could just say, oh, well, hold up, let's, let's reevaluate this. I think it's just, they're all sort of um, limbs or cells or um, organs, if you will, of, of the larger being and they're, um, they're under the control of that being to a certain extent. So we'll see, I guess, if it lives or survives um, into the next century, so. Thank, Thank you, you Luann, that was a fantastic question. Okay, <clears throat> thank you everybody, great comments. Uh, we're gonna have to move along here um, and I'm gonna have to go through this next section a little faster. Um, so we're gonna go into the, the thick of thought reform methods. We're gonna get into the next several in this segment. Uh, the next one is mystical manipulation. Mystical manipulation includes magical thinking that there are forces in play more powerful than the self. The group is serving a higher purpose. Um, there are spiritual and supernatural infusions in many of the uh, experiences that we have within the church. Uh, the teaching of wages of sin uh, coupled with the miracle of forgiveness, and that becomes a self-fulfilling uh, cycle. Uh, we see spiritual and supernatural stuff infused into missions and prophecy, uh, in, in prayer, in tithing, in the word of wisdom, things that happen that we just expect, or um, the things that happen that are good, we attribute to um, miracles. Uh, regardless of whether, you know, it was a coincidence or not. There are loops of logic 
Every conclusion says, yes, the church is true. When you start going through uh, your logic exercises, that was rather eye-opening for me too. Um, reality. So how do we keep grounded in reality? And for me, the thing that stood out and that came to my mind was the tremendous psychological benefits that have come into my life by finally admitting, I don't know. And what a wonderful institutional relief that would be, I think, if, if we could all admit, we don't know, we don't have the answers. Um, I think that helps us to keep, uh, keep more grounded in reality. Milieu control. Uh, information and environment is tightly controlled, which is kind of, it, it rules reality. You know, this is, this becomes our reality. Um, gossip, questioning, criticisms, tightly regulated. Uh, I can't, for example, feel comfortable raising my hand and making a comment in class without feeling that there's going to be some huge backlash or impact because of asking such a question. Doctrine uh, correlation. Uh, another word for that is whitewash. You know, basically everything's perfectly aligned. Everything is all neat and tidy. Uh, we don't look at, at all the, the stuff that we can't explain. Uh, outside non-correlated information about the group is fiercely prescribed. In fact, it's a sin if you are to reach outside of the group to actually look for information. Uh, <clears throat> outside friends and media, uh, sp spiritual preparedness becomes training on how to dispel cognitive dissonance. Um, if you're spiritually prepared, then you basically know how to dismiss all those nasty little thoughts that pop into your mind. Um, the family milieu. Uh, there are members of my family who are looking at my, my journey as complete betrayal. And, uh, and I've discovered that in a lot of cases, it really is better just to keep silent, keep my mouth shut, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so yeah, I'm experiencing this control every day. Um, <clears throat> there are miscellaneous other things, uh, things, you know, what gets publicized, a doctrine that just kind of disappears. Like, oh, we never said that. We don't emphasize, you know, President uh, Hinckley saying, we don't emphasize that anymore or whatever. Things that, uh, that just float away and we never hear about it again. But there's no announcement. There's no explanation for why the doctrine is changing. It just suddenly uh, disappears off of uh, churchofjesuschrist.org. And then the infamous Strengthening Church Members Committee. Um, I have to chuckle at that because I, part of me wonders uh, if, if maybe they've, they've got my number. Here's a lovely quote. Uh, without restrictions, this is, this is the vision of where we could be. Without restrictions on where we get information, there are abundant sources of wisdom and comfort, insight and wonder. There are millions of writers, creators, researchers, and professionals who share valuable pieces of their experience. The world is rich with inspiration. Take what works for you. Embrace what speaks to you. If there is anything lovely, virtuous, a good report, or praiseworthy, 
seek after those things, no matter what the origin. Uh, I love that quote. And, you know, in my own personal experience, I have loved nothing more than uh, studying uh, all these wonderful outside uh, resources and, and diving into Eastern uh, philosophies and, um, and all kinds of different scientific concepts and, and ways of, of looking at reality. And it has been very enriching, uh, en enriching for me as a human being. So <clears throat> demand for purity, perpetual inadequacy. Uh, this is a real, a real thing. <clears throat> we have lofty moral goals. So, uh, they seem quite achievable to the naive member, you know, the eight-year-old who's getting baptized or the new uh, deacon or young woman entering into, into the young women's program. Um, maybe the, the new convert. Yeah, we can do this. But then as we, as we, you know, push comes to shove and the standards suddenly, we realize how impossible they are to keep. That keeps us perpetually inadequate. Mission accomplished. Since we're perpetually inadequate, um, then, then we're always in need of the church. Uh, the incompatibility between the two concepts of perfection and eternal progression. Uh, that was a huge eye-opener for me that, Perfection is something we all strive for, but so is eternal progression. So how do you do both? Uh, often common human frailties are targeted for some of these standards. Uh, instinctual drives are demonized. And for years, for years, for decades throughout my life, I thought I was the only one with such diabolical, fail diabolical failures. Um, but it turns out, we're all in the same boat. We're all struggling with the same stuff. Keeps us uh, perpetually uh, hanging on. Dispensing of existence. Our very existence is at stake. Hanging in the balance is nothing short of life, the eternal soul, your self-esteem, sense of being good, and your own identity. Pretty tall, uh, tall glass of water there. Uh, consequences of impurity, doubt, or leaving the group are huge. Uh, one that I wanted to add and emphasize is the concept of that families can be together forever. You know, we tout that as such a wonderful thing, and yet what a horrible teaching it is. Because if families can be together forever, that means that families also might not. And we emphasize and practically worship uh, eternal families in the, in the church. And the pernicious evil trap is that you may become separated from your families forever and have that hanging over your head uh, with all, you know, your doubt and, and struggling. Doctrine over self. Uh, individ the individual is subordinate to the group leader and teachings. Uh, and if your personal desires, goals, values conflict with the group, they become, uh, then it's just simply selfish and immoral. Loading language, uh, words loaded with new meaning, new words are added, such as entertaining doubts, uh, persecution, uh, worthiness, um, translation is no longer a translation, uh, godly sorrow, which is basically another word for shame, and then eternal life means something totally different 
to members of the church than it does to most people outside the church. Other words have been banned or dropped. Uh, to say uh, the word Mormon now is a complete and total sin. And all these language changes affect our ability to think or communicate effectively outside of the group. Totalist reframing, situations reinterpreted to suit the group, draw desired conclusions, uh, used to prove ideology correct and squelch doubts and silence outsiders. Emotions are regularly reframed to, um, to mean something which will benefit the group. Thought terminating cliches, um, short phrases that are used or metaphors, pat answers, or emotional reactions that are pre-established to halt any sort of dialogue. Uh, arguments, doubts, and questions are automatically shut down. That's why you don't raise your hand in class and make that comment. Social pressure. Um, you know, we're all social animals and uh, looking for acceptance. Uh, so acceptance and rejection are used as a form of reward and punishment. Member becomes driven with the desire to conform. Uh, belief follows behavior. Um, your actions generate associated beliefs. So you just, you know, you, you live the commandments and then you'll, you'll know that it's true, right? Uh, public commitment. Commitments expressed aloud um, so that everyone can hear, yep, they're, they're, uh, they're definitely in, they're, they're safe, they're part of the group. Public statements reinforce belief and dedication to a group. Creating dependency, member uh, depending, the member depending on the group for physical, emotional, social, and spiritual needs. And when it's everything that you've ever known throughout your life, you know, the, you're born in the covenant or uh, it's been a huge part of your life growing up, it really is uh, pervasive. It just totally uh, takes over your life and you become completely dependent. There are high stakes in remaining, in remaining loyal or turning disloyal for that matter. Uh, black and white thinking, there are broad spectrums of thought and morality are reduced to binaries. Um, good versus evil, love versus hate, weak versus strong, humble versus proud, everything's black and white. Elitism, members are cho chosen people, exalted, righteous, the chosen generation. Um, members made to feel special and set apart from outsiders. We even use the, that term set apart uh, when someone is given a new calling. And then the us versus them thinking, which is a type of black and white dehumanization. Uh, Ex-members critic and critics are labeled as evil, apostate, vicious, hateful, prideful, blinded, deceived, etc. Persecution complex where reasonable criticism is reframed as an attack. So we went through that section pretty quick. Does anybody have any uh, comments or questions on what we just covered there? Landon. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to take up all the questions, but uh, the, the one that you said there really, really impacted me when you were talking about um, uh, 
uh, doctrine over self. Uh, when when I was a when I was home teaching, going up in the church, you know, I'd take my boys over. We'd help the 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 single lady clean out the gutters that were full of leaves and stuff, and you'd help her plant her garden and move dirt or whatever at certain times of the year, and you did all those things. And you think, boy, I should be, you know, developing a relationship with this person when when I'm doing all of this stuff uh, for them. But then you realize, you know, after I got out of the church, I realized that none of those people came over and asked anything of what's going on. Why is this, you know, why, why did you leave? And I, I began to realize that I, I didn't do that stuff for them. They saw it as the church did that for them. And I was just an extension of the church. I had become the church. And my relationship moved around with my assignment. If I was assigned someone else as the home teacher, my relationship with that person was for that time. And then I'd move again because I was just the church. I was just the representative from the church. And I realized I really had lost my identity. And it was whenever the ward split, you know, all these people that were your friends, all of a sudden you didn't talk to them anymore because they were in that ward and you're in this ward and you had to do your own thing. So I really realized after that I had become the church and the church was me. There was, there was no me. Uh, per se. So I really had lost my identity, I felt. Yeah, that's true. And in these sort of situations, whether it's uh, an organization like the Mormon Church, or like my situation with a narcissistic abuser, um, really, people are not seen as individuals as um, autonomous beings with our own senses and consciousness, um, and feelings, um, we become extensions of the group or of that narcissistic individual. Um, we, are, we are that mirror that is meant to reflect the image that that organization wants to reflect to the world and to each other, um, rather than um, people with sincere um, connections with one another. Yeah, so really unfortunate. Thank you, Landon. Lynette. Hi, um, yeah, this whole section really hit me hard. By the way, can I just ask Sean, can we get a copy of these slides? They are really good. They're a great outline for this wonderful book. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm fine with that. Thanks. Okay, one, one of the things that I have thought about a lot actually since leaving is, well, Landon pointed out that, you know, I'm not a person, I'm just part of this organization. And my husband and I have talked about how, you know, who am I really inside and trying to find that individual in ourselves and who who we would be without the church. And granted, there are a lot of things I've learned from the church. For example, I learned to play the organ, which I would not have learned without the church. I learned how to give lessons, which I probably would not have learned without the church. Things like that that were really helpful in my life in other areas as well. But one of the things that really hit me was the, the shame thing, because every time I went to talk to the bishop, I felt like I had done something wrong, even if I had never done anything that would be considered a sin. And I just, that kind of um, control over your life is just really, it, it's terrible to have that hanging over you. I never felt adequate. I always felt like I should be doing more. And since then, I'm trying to get rid of those things. And I talked to someone recently who had known me previously, and they said to me, wow, you are so different now. You're actually <laughs> a real person, <laughs> you know, in so many words. So, Luna, could you just talk about that a little more? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you described it all pretty well. Um, all of those things are definitely a part of it. Shame and um, that inadequacy, it kind of puts um, a lot of us into that appease mode. So there's um, four ways to react to trauma. There's there's more than four ways, but that's they sum it up to fight, flight, freeze, or appease. Um, I've heard other acronyms for it as well. Um, and, and uh, you know, those of us who um, have what I would call a good moral compass, we just have instincts to try to be people pleasers and um, take care of each other and we're earnest and sincere in those beliefs um, yeah we put ourselves in that submissive position or allow ourselves to go into that submissive position because it's easier it's safer um, it's what's expected of us um, you know whether or not the the bishop wants you to feel ashamed or not it's just what the system does to all of us um, and, and the unfortunate part is some people, for whatever reason, um, a, a small, a much smaller percentage of the population, um, they look at all those rules and think, yeah, those rules apply to everyone else and not me. Um, and they don't feel that shame and they don't feel that, um, that need to sort of shrink away from the danger. Um, they, they want to be the danger. They're like, well, if I, if I want to have any power in this situation, then I'll, I'll take that top role of using that shame against other people. And they can put on the act and they can pretend to fit in and, and be, be doing what everyone else is doing. So they're really, they can be really hard to spot if you don't really know what red flags to look for, um, especially if you're not uh, close to that person and, and sort of privy to maybe the way they talk about other people um, and uh, the way they, they behave in private. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, um, but uh, that's what I have to say. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, Tom? I'm, I'm just going to add a comment, an observation, Luna, that when I read this book, your book, thank you, by the way, I, I know you were very um, vocal in the beginning about how you didn't want to offend or upset your family um and i really felt like you you kept true to that so i never felt like this was an this was an overt attack which is weird because we read a lot of things online that you know people are upset and they attack and we can get carried away and really attack as a group but i don't i don't know i just wanted to say that you did, I didn't feel that. And so I really was able to read it as, yeah, instead of all the emotion of being upset, which obviously I was while I read it. And, but I didn't feel like you were trying to get me to be angry uh, because you were angry or you were, well, maybe you were, but you were not leading with that. You were leading with this is this is what happened. That's what I felt like happened. So thank you. That's all I had. That was just a comment. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I think anger is a, a really important emotion. Um, it tells us when something is hurt, um, is hurting us, and that, that we aren't able to resolve with the first sort of lines of other emotions that we feel. So anger is that frustration of this, this thing isn't going away and it, it hurts. Um, when we can process the anger, when we can resolve the thing that's causing the hurt in some way, then the anger will naturally go away. Um, and so that's kind of part of 
my goal with this book is to help people. Um, we, I was a, a moderator on postmormon.org before I wrote this book and in the mid OOs around, um, 2007, uh, a little bit before and after that. And, um, it, unfortunately postmormon.org is no more. Um, it was a wonderful, wonderful, uh, forum before Facebook took over everything and Reddit and everything. And, um, we, we noticed, um, this sort of pattern that would happen where people would come on. Usually they'd start with one of the other forums, um, what we called the mad boards, which was recovery from Mormonism, where people would just go in and they would do what we see like a lot on Reddit now, which is just sort of like, um, lambast the church, um, because they were working through that anger. And then we'd notice people would come to sites like ours sort of after that initial time period, whatever it was, a few months, a year, a couple of years, whatever it was. And then they'd come to postmormon.org and there we would have these sort of intellectual discussions. And, um, we noticed, uh, that most of the users would spend about a year or two on our site. So like a year or two on another site and a year or two on our site. And so there was this like two to three year period where people were really heavily processing their post-Mormon phase. And then we would get the post, um, Hey guys, it's been great. Um, learned a lot. I've made a lot of friends here, but I'm just not feeling it anymore. Uh, I've got these other hobbies and interests. So I'm going to go off and do that now. Um, and we all say goodbye. And, um, I had my own time, although I keep coming back to it because I'm intellectually interested in it as well. But yeah, that's, uh, if we can process anger, anger can be really healthy. It's only when we get stuck in anger for whatever reason, whether it's our own attitudes towards it or because the problem, you know, there are situations where the problem cannot be solved and it will continue to hurt us, you know, forever. Um, and in those cases, the anger and the anger stays. And just to add on just a question, I guess I should ask this. I think I was asking this is how, how did you do that without unleashing maybe your, what the obvious, maybe the, the anger, maybe that was, I don't know if you had any, you, you didn't show it so overtly, but how did you contain it, keep it down? So it didn't become this just big, I'm lashing out at the church rant. I, ha- I have, I have my times. Uh, I still have my times. Uh, I've got my issues that get me riled up still. Um, I think the sexual abuse cover-ups, that one always gets me. Um, back when I was reading the Mormon Alliance case studies, um, they're still up, by the way. Um, Levina Fielding, Anderson, and um, forgetting the other, I think one of the Toscanos was involved in that. And, um, you know, I, I went and read those like early on. And yeah, that kind of stuff. We've known about that since the mid 90s, at least people have been writing about that since the mid 90s, at least. And that one gets me. Um, but yeah, I, I had my times, I think there weren't really any ex Mormon communities when I first left um, to speak of. Um, and, and I didn't really feel pulled towards them anyway. That wasn't really an option for me. So I probably I was on a lot of IRC chat rooms and internet activities of various kinds and um so i probably was angry in my own ways just towards religion in general at the time um yeah by the time i wrote recovering agency um i i had intellectualized it quite a bit quite pretty heavily at that point and i'd been out of the church for a, a decade plus at that point so um you know a lot of it just takes time and consciousness i think those two time consciousness and a sense of empowerment to solve whatever problems are still being caused, um, those things can help uh, dissipate at least a lot of the anger. Well, I like the way you you handled that and the way you were sensitive about it, because at the end of the day, you allowed us then to react the way we would react rather than being influenced by an overt 
you know, emotion or something. So thank you again. Yeah, That's all. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Luna. <clears throat> okay, um, <clears throat> we will we will proceed to the third and final segment of the discussion topic here. Continuing with thought reform methods. In <clears throat> indirect directives, uh, this is a little irksome for me. Uh, behavior demands are implied, not expressed. Logical elements are supplied, uh, leaving members to draw the desired conclusion thems themselves, quote unquote, themselves. Uh, leadership remains innocent of any bad teachings. We never said that, is what we may hear. Um, and unfortunately, that's pretty prevalent as you dig into the doctrine of the church, it becomes uh, quite a rat's nest of indirect directives. Uh, the next one is influence through identification and example. Uh, others' behavior, uh, others' behavior um, is used as uh, good or bad examples, and the desired behavior is that therefore inferred. The mind relates strongly to stories. You know, we are a a storytelling, story-listening people. And nothing impacts the mind quite like uh, the stories that we hear. Um, so we hear stories, and that implies whatever truth they're trying to share. Uh, stories may be completely reframed or totally untrue, but told, uh, taught as truth anyway. Uh, they demonstrate consequences, and then it inspires the desired social pressure to conform. Emotion over intellect. Emotion preferred. Um, emotion is the preferred decision-making tool, not just decision-making, but truth discovering as well. Um, using reason is, is downplayed, um, ignored, or, or even rejected. Uh, and teaching styles are often very much tied into the delivery, the emotions, the cheerful stories, the gentle tones, the solemn testimonies, et cetera. Um, I struggle with that one a little bit because when I was serving as bishop, um, I'm, I'm an emotional person. <laughs> and so a lot of times I'd be up at the pulpit sharing something very touching and, and I couldn't hold back the tears. Um, and then I look back and thought, you know, is that, is, is that right? Is that normal uh, for us to be so, uh, to use our emotions so easily? But, you know, I, I guess my, my thought is uh, we are, again, we are uh, empathetic people. And uh, some of us maybe show, are, are better at being vulnerable than others. Um, maybe that's not such a bad thing. But I think where it gets twisted is when, when it's used uh, theatrically or when it's purposefully in, injected to, to get some sort of a desired response to strengthen somebody's belief um, when it's not necessarily genuine. Induced phobias. Um, we have all kinds of fears that are instilled that are 
probably based on imaginary stuff. Um, it may be based on real or exaggerated consequences, and it may be based on artificial effects created from group pressure. And, you know, there's probably examples of phobias that we could all relate to. Um, you know, you don't pay your tithing, you might, uh, you might burn or you might uh, lose your job, um, you know, or your garments, you might, you know, get in an accident and get injured or whatnot. Transinduction and disassociative states. A critical thinking reduces, is reduced through encouragement of receptive mental states, such as, you know, fasting and prayer, the types of things that we do, which, um, which uh, maybe alter our mental uh, thinking or mental state. Altered states seem mild or normal, but, the, but it affects our concentration. It can bring on fatigue, boredom, hunger, et cetera, which may make us more susceptible to influence. Uh, time control. I think anybody who served in a, uh, in a calling that was a little bit demanding on time can relate to this. There's not much time left to question beliefs, to examine your life, or to be influenced by uh, outside social life. Um, you know, we, we talk about living in the world, but not being of the world. But in many cases, it's really hard to even be in the world when you're a member of the church because you're, you're constantly on the go. And, you know, you've made your time dedicated to the group as expected uh, through the law of consecration. You've, you've promised that you would uh, dedicate all your time and talents and so forth. Uh and it often fills every every spare moment. I've noticed the church has started to lighten up on this. Um, fortunately, when I was serving as bishop, my stake president, one of the first things he told me was um, to not try and do it all, that I could wear myself out and that I needed to have balance and spend dedicated time towards my family. I don't think that that advice was has always been given throughout the history of the church, but I, I've noticed that uh, it is happening more and uh, people are being a lot more sensitive uh, to, to those sort of demands, um, which, you know, maybe it's a local thing uh, and uh, leadership roulette, that kind of thing. But uh, I'm grateful that at least that has been my experience. Uh, the double bind. Members are damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, and the, the book that uh, Luna references, uh, regarding the double bind uh, in their book is, is really, really good in uh, kind of laying out all the, all the different ways that we get caught up into this double bind. We could spend an entire uh, event just talking about that. Um, and then you're left to either betray the group or betray your own integrity. Um, this was my experience. Uh, in November of 2015, when I was standing up at the pulpit trying to explain to the members with a stake, a member of the state presidency sitting behind me, uh, why it was such a great thing that the pol policy of exclusion uh, came out. Um, and the whole time I was just, I was just dying inside. Um, and just, yeah, it was a double bind. Uh, no matter what I did, 
if I could either choose to follow my own conscience or I could choose to fall in. Uh, blame reversal. Uh, the church, leadership, doctrine, and now policy are above reproach. In fact, if you um, speak out against a church policy now, that's grounds for uh, disciplinary counsel and possible excommunication, uh, according to the new updated handbook of instructions. Um, failed promises and bad results are always the fault of the member, never the fault of the church. Guilt and shame. So guilt, this is sort of a, a cycle of guilt and shame uh, where you have repressed doubts and then you have social pressures and then failure to meet standards and they just kind of feed on each other, uh, exasperating the, the shame and the guilt um, as you fall into this cycle. Uh, there's a difference between guilt and shame and Luna does a great job of, of kind of differentiating these. Uh, my take was that guilt is really more of your moral inner compass, whereas shame is the social or tribal compass. Um, and when, when it enters into the public forum, it becomes a public man, matter. You have this strong desire to, to want to fit in and that shame really drives a lot. It's a, it's an engine that keeps churning and churning, um, uh, inside the minds of, of our members, um, and they become very susceptible to it. Uh, understanding and love are the cure for shame. Uh, there are unintended consequences for this. Um, there, unfortunately, there's, there's been a lot of self-harm. There's been a lot of uh, damaged emotional, um, emotionally damaged people who are now seeking therapy. Uh, and even, even uh, those who have chosen to uh, end their lives um, because of shame. Shame is a very powerful, very vicious, very damaging uh, thing in our lives. I think one of the things that started me on this journey was well, well before I ever ran across any um, doctrinal issues or any disagreements with policy. Um, couple of years before that. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to try and get rid of the shame in my life. I was reading Brene Brown and uh, learning more about shame and realized what a vicious thing it was. And I decided right then I was going to do whatever it took to take, get that out of my life. And uh, that kind of started the, the process for me. Uh, the shame of sex, that's a, <laughs> sex is an LDS obsession. Uh, it is our favorite thing to to be fearful of and talk about and, and warn people of it is the sin next to murder. Um, therefore, there's a lot of shame for something that is such a normal part of our lives. And then that leads to confession. Uh, confession is a process of surrendering. I, I love that, the way that Luna put this in the book. It, it totally is. It's, it's the process of surrendering yourself to the leaders. It reduces privacy and boundaries. Um, the process of purification uh, may bring temporary relief and an increase in dedication, and it's motivating. It becomes a motivation to obey and avoid the confession. Unfortunately, my experience has been 
that it's not so motivating to avoid the sin, but it's more motivating to lie about it uh, because you just don't want to have to go through that process. It's so painful. Um, so there's a lot of lying that happens, and I've seen it, and I still see it. Uh, people who just, they're, they're you know, sick of, uh, of the, the control, the, uh, the punishment that happens through the shame process, the shame confession repentance process. Euphoria induction, uh, group participation and, and fulfilling, it becomes fulfilling of our ideals, um, motivates for good behavior, reducing doubt, proving validity of the group, loss of individuality, and transinducement. The illusion of a spiritual high often following a time of stress. And, uh, you know, we all live stressful lives. And if we find any sort of relief uh, with anything that may be remotely related to the church, um, then that becomes an answer to prayer. It becomes, uh, hey, uh, the church must be true because I feel so much better now. Um, proselytizing. Members are encouraged to teach outsiders. I think the latest uh, program they have is now called Love, Share, and Invite. Um, you know, it's, it's gone by many other names in the past, and that's just the, the latest uh, trademark. Uh, purpose is to maintain growth, to soothe cognitive dissonance. It's also uh, time-consuming, and it's an opportunity to show commitment. And another quote from Luna, if I preach anything, and I... This is how I feel too. This is how I would love everyone to be. That if I preach anything, it is that each person needs to seek their own path, adopting beliefs that lead to inner awareness, acceptance, and self-actualization. By necessity, all such paths will be very different from one another. And I think that's just beautiful. That is far and away what, what we do within the church. Uh, bait, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, basically, this section, as we get towards the end, um, demonstrates how there, there are multiple methods in play, and they all work together to sort of create this, this uh, web uh, and ensnare and, and trap us. Um, I remember sharing my testimony once, and I, I even used these words. And I was so in and so determined, so believing that I, I testified to the congregation that, that I accepted all of it, hook, line, sinker, and fishing pole. And that was because, uh, because I thought it was true. You know, I, I think if, if we believe it's true, if we believe it's real, then it's worth any sacrifice. And, uh, and we can overcome any doubt if we, if we have that, that uh, foundation of belief. And so that's what keeps so many um, TBMs going, is that they just, they just believe so strongly. Um, they, don't allow, they don't allow any of the cognitive dissonance. They don't allow any of the logic or... Um, uh, self-actualization or mind expansion to, uh, to happen within their own lives, within their own minds. 
because nothing else could be could even remotely be possible. So this brings us to our conclusion. Playing the garden. And, you know, I kind of looked at this section as the deconstruction process, and I put in parentheses grieving. Uh, there's a grieving process that has to take place. Um, the, the getting over it, you know, that's, that's probably the angry stage. Uh, the recovering, that's the acceptance, that's the healing uh, stage. And then the thriving, you know, once you, once you get over it, once you recover, the good news is that you can thrive. The, that there's a there's a, an expanding world out there, and then there's your your own personal expansion that happens in in the process. And you know these aren't necessarily linear. Um, I may feel like I'm really thriving one day, and then the next day, all of a sudden, I'm in that angry stage again. Um, and uh, you know, and and there's always healing that has to take place and the acceptance of, of things. But it doesn't mean that you can't thrive. I, I think even, even when you're in those modes, even when you are dealing with, with anger or with you know, frustration or dealing with TBMs who just you just can't communicate with um, or going through a recovery process, to, to be able to reach out and to be able to look at what's out there, uh, there's a, such a, a richness out there in the world to discover. Um, and, and that thriving can happen. It can, it can happen uh, right now. And, there, and then Luna talks a lot about all the support that's available. There's lots of support. There's tremendous resources. Um, and there's more and more being added. Um, and uh, you know, it would be difficult to keep up a single website that has all the resources that are available. They're just, they're just really coming on uh, fiercely and strongly and, and uh, from all, all walks of life. I belong to a, um, a uh, marriage on a tightrope group and, and the, the men who are, or the husbands who are non-believing, who have believing spouses, we kind of belong to this special Marco Polo group. And, and we're on there all the time uh, posting uh, therapeutic things that we have to get off our chest. Um, and giving each other encouragement and sharing stories. And um, that alone has been a tremendous support for me. Um, and there's other, you know, there's other resources out there. But uh, I think that's the end of that section. Yep. So we have the summary of the third segment there. If anybody has any questions or comments uh, they'd like to make on any of those things we just talked about. I'm going to jump in real quick because um, Christine had a question in the um, chat uh, a few minutes ago. So um, if you don't mind, I'll just ask that and answer it. So um, Christine asks, um, what tools are there to help a person detect when undue influence is being employed? Um, first of all, awareness can really help. Um, Actually, I should start by saying that there's no bulletproof way to completely protect yourself from all types of influ undue influence and manipulation out there. Um, as I mentioned before, um, much to my chagrin, um, you know, I, I feel really, I felt really, really, really um, dumb. I, get, I don't like using dumb, but it, I felt really dumb after um, leaving um, 
my abuser and while I was writing this book, um, you described him. So there, there's always a message out there that might appeal to you that might not be a fully ethical message. So we kind of just have to do our best to be a, as aware as possible because that's the problem with this stuff is it's deceptive, right? Um, so it's, it's really hard to tell if their lie is really, really good. Um, but learning, learning to spot those red flags, and I'd say even more importantly, learning to trust your intuition and instincts. That's something that the church um, suppressed in us and taught us to suppress. It's taken me many, many years to learn how to trust my instincts and intuition. Um, you don't always know when your intuition is right, because sometimes your intuition can be wrong too. Sometimes your intuition can be manipulated, but that initial gut feeling of something isn't right here, just like learn to pay attention to that and ask more questions and dig deeper and become more observant when you see those red flags. Um, and I'll leave you with one more is a quote from um, one of my favorite shows, Bojack Horseman. Um, one of the characters in that show says that um, when you're wearing rose colored glasses, all the red flags just look like flags. So um, that's just, um, I don't wanna leave everyone feeling mistrustful of everything all the time, but you kind of have to keep like a little bit of mistrust um, in a healthy dose um, with everything. So thanks for that Thank question, you. Christy. Yeah. Thank you so much, Luna. Uh, Bruce. Yeah, I just had some, you know, just my own thoughts on fleeing the garden, getting over it, recover and thrive. Um, I think the concept of finding community or finding your family and friends of choice is something that we have to do. Um, I'm still, you know, on fairly good terms with my family, but I describe my family as polite acquaintances and my close family, you know, my parents have passed away. My half my siblings have passed away already. And, you know, I have nieces and nephews and we're polite to each other and stuff, but I've developed family of choice and friends of choice, and then also uh, therapists. I, I've had the same therapist for five or six years now. He's uh, never Mormon, he's also gay. You know, It's just very helpful to have somebody you can talk to openly and honestly about everything and stuff. So that family and friends of choice, I think is the way that post-Mormons need to develop that those two aspects of family and friends of choice because that's how we recover and thrive. Just my thoughts. Yeah, that's Thank that's you. good input. The social um, sort of, well, I mean, it's, it's using some of these um, methods, which many of these thought control methods have a, a positive side or an ethical use case. And I think that social proof um, and uh, is, is can be a very healthy thing, especially when we have some level of choice and empowerment in in those um, family connections, those that found family, as um, a lot of us from the queer community are very familiar with the, the feeling of found family and having to just kind of, when our own family isn't there for us, um, find that in our, in, in our in those around us, those we choose. And that's really important, yeah. Thank you, Nelson. Yes, I really like the discussion about the double bind. Um, that is, that's the church all over again. You um, aren't getting the, the 
answer to your prayers. Well, you're not praying hard. Well, or, you know, that whole thing over and over and over again. I, I, I'd never really thought of it in those terms or heard of the, the double bind, but I thought that was definitely very, um, as I was listening, I listened to it on, on uh, Audible, and as I listened to it, it's like, yeah, that's, that was my life over and over and over again. And, and you know, I've, early on in the book club, I told people, you know, the re- way I left the church is I just got bored. It wasn't anything that I was particularly concerned about or didn't believe or, or any particular doctrine. It was just I was bored. And so I had to go find something else to keep me more excited. But um, I, I really liked that part. And then there was one part, Luna, I'm going to say here a little bit, you know, maybe might come across a little critical at first, but when I finish what I'm saying, I think it won't be as critical. Again, listening to it, sometimes I would get out of the car and I'd come back to the car and it's like, man, did my, uh, did my audio recording go back to something I already heard again? Because there was parts of it that I thought got a little bit repetitive as far as the same type of story over and over and over again. But then after I thought about it, I thought, you know what? That's really what we lived through, the repetitive over and over and over and over again. And then I'd listen, well, wait, that story's a little bit different than the one that was told before, but it's the same, but it's a little bit different. Because, and that's definitely the kind of the cycle, I think, that, that we saw see a lot um, throughout the whole process. So after I thought about a little bit more, my criticalness of, of the, oh, it's kind of repetitive, kind of went away because I think there was a little bit more behind that than just, oh, I got to fill up a couple more pages. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm very detail-oriented and um, I'm a completionist. So I feel often like I have to, to put everything in there. And there's actually a lot of stuff I cut from this, a lot of stuff I wanted to include in here. Um, uh, but I, I probably did get a little repetitive just because I'm like, I want to make sure that this detail gets covered. <laughs> so thank you for that feedback. Thanks, Nelson. Lori. Okay, I debated back and forth whether I should say anything, but it kind of goes back to what Tom was saying, how he really struck, like, I really struggle, like, I feel like I'm in a better place. But I would like to share with all of my true blue member family members how that's because of black and white feel, uh, thinking that's because of this. This is why you're struggling. And I'm really, and I'm wondering, this is new for me, but I'm wondering if that's still anger that's taking place. And by the way, Luna, you're like the, one of the very first Mormon stories I listened to all like 25,000 hours that you did, but it was so good. So, so I couldn't wait. I bought the book and was excited. So anyway, back to the question. Um, like, is that still the anger phase? Cause I'm still new or is that me just can't keeping my mouth shut? I don't know. Because that's not the journey they're on. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and try to try to pick where to start because I have a lot of thoughts coming up from that. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily anger. I mean, that that it could be anger. Um, the We learned through Mormonism sort of a lack of boundaries. Um, we learned that we needed to control people around us and we needed to accept people controlling us um, because there was so much at stake. Um, if someone wasn't doing what we thought we should do, we needed to let them know and correct them. And, um, and that is just something that's in us. Um, so some of it is learning healthy boundaries and some of it's deciding when, when should we influence someone and when shouldn't we? When should we let them 
make their own choices. And that's a really fine line to walk. And it's up to each person to figure out what that is, what's too much and what isn't. Um, one of the, the spiritual quotes that I live by probably more than anything else um, is the serenity prayer. Um, so which goes, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And as I study Eastern philosophy, I mean, that's really Buddhism in a nutshell. Um, and Buddhism is very much about when should I let go? When should I try to change something? When should I put effort in and when should I relax? There's a lot of that in Taoism as well. Um, the, the yin yang, the push pull. Um, so it's really just, you know, do you need them to change for something that you need or is it for something that they need and can you really know their needs um my own my own approach is often just very subtle very gentle you know put, put the information out there in you know a subtle and easy to digest way and if they engage with it then engage back with them and if they don't then just let it go because it's their life and it's their choices um, another approach that I read a lot about in the literature, if you're really interested in um, engaging with them more on that, is to use examples from other groups. So, you know, oh, I was just watching Going Clear the other day, and there was a former Scientologist on there who was talking about this thing, and I read somewhere else that that's called black and white thinking, and, you know, what do you think about that, right? And it's sort of with, a, with an eye to engaging them and having them be present as a person, rather than being just another object, we're just treating the object differently than the church taught us to treat. So, yeah, you know, you I, I think you hit it on the head because like I am a perfectionist from where I came from. And then also super controlling, especially with my family, because if they weren't in line, they weren't going to be with me. And so like, I was very difficult to be with. And I think you really nailed that. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Lori. So I have a question for you, Luna. I'm going to stop sharing here. Um, first of all, I just, I just want to say what a privilege this has been for me to um, go through this process and, and really dig deep in, into your book. Thank you. uh, and I, I found it one of the most mind-expanding books that I've read in, in my journey. And I want to thank you for putting all this all this together and just really helping to, to sort it out and, and put it all on, on, on paper. Um, and there's so much, there's so much there and, and it just, it just all makes so much sense. So thank you for that. Yeah. I appreciate um, that. That's high praise. <laughs> <laughs> My question is um, how much are you living, still living in this post-Mormon space uh, as far as, your creativity goes, your, your writing, your, the stuff that you're producing, or, or have you, have you been able to move on? Are you, what, what do you have coming, uh, coming in the future? Um, well, this has sort of become my thing, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm disabled, um, aforementioned abuser. Um, so I, with autism and burnout and, um, cause my coping strategy is to work hard. And so I worked too hard on this book and the other things in my life at the time with my abuser. Um, so I'm dealing with, you know, chronic fatigue and PTSD and all kinds of 
crap. So I can't really work full time anymore. Um, but what I am working on, um, a couple of things, um, I'm working, I'm very excited. Um, I'm working with Natasha Helfer to write her, um, excommunication story. And I'm also just about her life as well. Um, really excited about that. Um, so that's what I'm doing, um, for, I'm, go I'm a ghostwriter. So that's what I'm doing for my living. Um, I have a couple of projects I'd like to get to someday. I, I have been working on, although, um, not, not this year, but previous last year, um, on what I'm calling a scripture, because I think that anything that's inspirational, um, is a scripture. And I think that, um, anybody has the right to speak for God, whatever that means. So that's why I'm calling it a scripture, but I'm sort of working on a, a book that is sort of looking forward to, um, you know, how can we rebuild a spirituality that's inspired by Mormonism that isn't authoritarian? Um, uh, another way to, to um, describe it is um, uh, my, my parents were contending with me quite a bit, you know, over this whole me not being Mormon anymore thing. And I was like, well, what if I, what if I wrote down um, all of my, like the way if Mormon doctrine changed to be this, then I could accept it. Um, and it was supposed to be an email and it's turning into a book. Um, so, um, so I'm working on that. And then someday I would like to work on a thing um, I call abuse culture, which is sort of taking the, the concepts that are in recovery agency and taking a look at the rest of society and interpersonal relationships and organizations and just basically saying, here's how um, all of society and individuals use these techniques and maybe we should um, to basically bolster abusers and help abusers out and enable them. So maybe we should um, stop helping the abusers. <laughs> so um, those are kind of my three, uh, three big things right now. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Fantastic. That's exciting. Yeah. Thanks. Does anybody else have any questions or comments they'd like to make at this point? Well, I guess we'll turn it back to you, Rebecca. Yeah, I think, uh, hold on a second. It's asking me to unmute. There we go. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm just in awe of this entire discussion. I was very silent today, which I'm usually not because I just was taking it all in and just so in awe of the book and what it means to everyone and of Luna. This has just been an incredible discussion. So let's um, finish up with our final slides. We do move into a sort of mix and mingle um, after this, um, which allows us just to kind of talk. It's not recorded. So, you know, we can be a little more free in that. So anybody who'd like to stay for that, um, we always have a really good time there. So let's see, um, as we said at the top of the episode, uh, we're going to be covering Genghis Khan for our book club book in May. And Bruce is going to give us a brief uh, preview to get us all excited about reading that. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm leading the discussion on Genghis Khan. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the book club is one of the means that I help trying to figure out how the world works what my place is, is in it, and just kind of understanding how the world works in a post-Mormon understanding of the world. And so we've read things like Sapiens, Free Will, um, Body Keeps the Score, How to Be Perfect, as kind of understanding ourselves. We've seen other cultures, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, 1491, describing the Americas before Columbus came. The culture we grew up in 
was very Eurocentric and Abrahamic religion based on the view of its world. There's other parts of the world and Genghis Khan and that part of Asia from his period was uh, 1206 to 1294. It's a very interesting book. I read it several years ago and that's why I suggested it for, uh, for the book club. It's just kind of expanding our understanding of how the world is you know, beyond the Eurocentric Judeo-Christian world view that we have. And I always think, you know, how lucky and miraculous it is. And it's lucky that I was born now because I could have been born on the Mongol steppe when Genghis Khan's horde came through. And I may have had, you know, a family. I may have been in my 20s and killed just because... I was in their way. And so my life is much, much richer just because of the luck that I have. And I need to take advantage of that. So this book will give us kind of an understanding and a nice read on something that was going on in another part of the world that many of us grew up not knowing about. Thank you, Bruce. That was a great preview. And, and I do love that about the book club so much also is that we, we vote on categories of what we'd like to read and they change year to year. And then within those categories, we make suggestions of books and then we vote on those books. So I love it that we just love to learn and we love to read and basically re-educate ourselves kind of on the other side of Mormonism. So I'm very excited to delve into this book. I think it'll be great. So very quickly, uh, we just introduced a little bit of media on the radar that the book club might be interested in. We have the Good Media Club where we kind of curate uh, things that are series, movies, you know, relevant to Mormonism, post-Mormonism. We just kind of put there out, out there. It's on a Facebook page. So you can find that if you're interested. Um, our episodes and our book club meetings are in podcast format. So you can go to the Good Book Club po podcast through any of your typical ways that you would access a podcast and you can get the audio of that. And that's available pretty quickly after our episodes. Um, also on YouTube, the Good Book Club for Post-Mormons is what you want to search because there's a lot of things on YouTube called the Good Book Club, mostly Christian. <laughs> so search the Good Book Club for Post-Mormons and all of our book club meetings and bonus events are posted there for all of us to access. So that's a good way to catch up. Um, also, you can check out the Mormonish podcast. That's something that Landon and I run together. And we interview a lot of you guys because you guys have awesome stories on the other side of Mormonism. And we like to give everyone a platform to tell everybody, you know, their thoughts and feelings. And we can all learn from that. So um, other ways to contact us, if you're not a member, but you just popped in for today, but you'd like to join us or find out more. Um, we have a Facebook page. That's where we do most of our interaction. That's our logo right there. You can just find us on Facebook and ask to join. We're also on Instagram where we can um, send links and things to meetings. And you can just send me an email if you're not on social media at thegoodbookclub at mail.com. And I will write you right back and tell you other ways to connect with us and send you links to things if you'd like to be involved. And I think our last slide, oh yes, sometimes if you email me uh, and I email you back, it goes to spam. So for whatever reason, check your spam if you have reached out because we always will get back to you because we love to interact with all of you. And, and as we've said uh, many times in all of our meetings, community is the most important. So that being said, um, let us end our recording now. Goodbye from the Good Book Club. Thank you 